You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to trust in your Word by faith, that we would uh, behold great things uh, from it, that we would know more about you, and that we would grow in our love and knowledge of you. And we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Christmas is just 20 days away. Can you believe it? Can you feel it? Are you ready for it? Is your tree up? Is it decorated? Uh, Maybe you're one of those people who've had their tree up from Christmas last year. Maybe all of your Christmas shopping is completed already. You went to the Christmas village in the BJCC and you got all your Christmas shopping out of the way in November, October. Maybe you're physically prepared for Christmas, but are you spiritually prepared for Christmas? Or to ask it another way, are you ready for the coming of God? Will you be ready when God himself appears at your doorstep? That's the question that we're presented with in our passage in Luke chapter 3. My son is ready. The passage begins by setting out the lay of the land, much like The prophets of the Old Testament, Luke introduces us to John the Baptist by uh, listing all the rulers who were in power at his time. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachontius, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke spends a lot of time, he goes into great detail, to specify the context for us. It was during the Roman occupation of Israel, under the rule of Tiberius Caesar, the second emperor of Rome, with Pontius Pilate governing over Judea and Herod ruling over the region of Galilee during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, side note, there was only ever one high priest in power at a time, and so Caiaphas was the actual high priest, and Annas was the high priest emeritus. But Luke kind of is giving you this historical context of this time. Why does Luke go into such detail about all these figures? Well, I believe it's for two reasons. Firstly, for historical validity, and second, for theological context. First, Luke is writing in a manner of a historian. He's trying to write the facts as they happened, as they occurred. And we learn this in the beginning of his biography of Jesus in chapter 1, where he writes that he's trying to write an orderly account in accordance with those who were eyewitnesses to the events. So by listing all these rulers, these governors, these high priests, he's pinpointing the time in which these events occurred. These are real people. You can go and Google them and find out all about their lives. These are real events in history. These things didn't happen in a corner. They were public. Second, we learn about the theological landscape during this time. God's people, the nation of Israel, are in God's place, the promised land, but they're under a foreign rule. Notice that it's Tiberius Caesar who is reigning at this time. But he's not a descendant of David that God had promised would rule over his people. And then there's all this middle management. And who doesn't love middle management? Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius, and the the high priests. 
the people of Israel have gotten in bed with foreign nations. They have not sought to establish themselves as a nation separated from the world, holy to the Lord. They've not trusted in the Lord to rule over them, to guide and protect them. They've failed to live as God has called them to, breaking the covenants he's established with them. And yet it's within this context, in, within this historical context, within this theological context, that God speaks to Israel. Look at the end of verse 2 again with me. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And notice the contrast of who the word of God comes to. It's not Caesar. It's not the ruler of the Roman Empire. It's not the most powerful person in the Western world. It's not Pontius Pilate or Herod, tetrarchs of Galilee, who remain infamous to this day. We talk about them to this day. It's not the high priests, those who would have been considered the closest to God, the most holy people in the land. It was this guy, John, son of Zechariah, born of an elderly and formerly barren woman, a man who lived in the wilderness. Imagine if this was to happen in our context, in our day and age. Instead of God speaking to the Queen of England or to the President of the United States or to the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury, God decides to speak to old mate Barry, who lives in Wagga Wagga in Australia, which is just a small town outside of Sydney in Australia. It exists. It's a real place. Take my word for it. God is not concerned with pomp and circumstance, with looking for the most gifted or most powerful people to spread his message throughout the earth. He's looking for hearts that prepare him room. And when John hears this word, he immediately springs into action. Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So after receiving this word of God, John goes all over the place preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And John's baptism is a little bit different from the baptism we have now. We baptize people in the triune God, or what Paul will call the baptism of Jesus in the book of Acts. The baptism that John is proclaiming is a baptism of repentance, which is about preparation for God's coming. And notice in this proclamation that God is not concerned with the political or the social or the military realms being prepared for his arrival. There's no battle plan, there's no strategic communications rollout, there's no political spin. There's just this one guy in the wilderness calling people to repentance. But this one guy is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Not all of them. This particular promise. That one day there would be a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This quotation comes from Isaiah 40, and it's in this quotation that we see the importance of John the Baptist. He is the one who has come to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, the one who God promised us in Malachi 3, who would prepare the way before the coming of God himself. And so while John the Baptist is a significant figure, we, we read about him even now, 
His coming means so much more. His coming means that God himself is on the way. And so like the changing of the leaves in fall, like the pumpkin spice lattes at Starbucks, we know that Christmas is coming. By those signs, we know that Christmas is coming. It's on the way. And so the same with John the Baptist. He's preparing us for something that is to come. And from this quotation, it seems like the Messiah, the coming of Messiah, is going to be this grand parade, doesn't it? The king is coming. All the land will be made ready for his arrival. The valleys will be filled in. The mountains will be brought low. The potholes are going to be fixed. The red carpet is going to be rolled out. The way will be smooth for the coming of the king. There will be nothing that can stand in his way. It kind of reminds me, you're going to go with me with this, it kind of reminds me with the scene in Aladdin where Aladdin uh, asks to become Prince Ali uh, and he enters into the city uh, and there, there's this big fanfare with you know, elephants and uh, people banging drums and you know, they sing this song. Uh, I sang it this morning and it didn't go over well, but let's, I'm going to say a little bit of it. Make way for Prince Ali. Does that ring anyone bells? Make way, make way, here it comes. Ring the bells, bang the drums. You're going to love this guy. Anyway, this grand parade, the king is coming into the city. But the surprising thing is, in this passage, the preparation that John is proclaiming is not physical, but spiritual. The language of this quote is poetic. While it describes the physical and material world being reshaped and reformed, that's not actually what happened. Rather, God, through Isaiah, is using symbolism. It's symbolic of the human heart that needs preparation. Now, if we remember the theological context, the hearts of the Israelites had become rocky. They were not prepared for the coming of the king. They had made themselves slaves to foreign rulers. They'd sought uh, the kingdom of themselves rather than the kingdom of God. As one commentator writes, Rough terrain that obstructs travel is a symbol of the roadblocks presented by an unrepentant heart. But this is not just their problem. It's not just Israel's problem. It's a problem of us, of all people. We all have rocky hearts. We all seek first our own kingdom rather than God's. And we do this in so many different ways. By putting off spending time with God and not gathering with his people by trusting in our own bank accounts or our own gifts and abilities or anything rather than God, by living unrepentant lives of sin, thinking that God's way is not the right way. Each and every one of us seeks to put ourselves on the throne. We all need to heed John's warning to prepare for the coming of the King. So the question that we have now is how do we repair? How do we prepare? How do we make straight the way for the Lord? Well, John tells us it's through repentance. The same commentator writes, the image of the road building applies to repentance. It requires transforming the rocky terrain, removing obstructions, and leveling as the crooked ways of humans are turned into the straight ways of God. Repentance is the turning away from something and the turning to God. And we need to do that with our hearts. We need to turn away from the things that we trust in and trust in the Lord. Well, why should we prepare? The writer of Hebrews says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The coming of God is not completely a good thing. 
We heard this in our Malachi reading. Listen again to Malachi 3.2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like our finest fire and like a fuller's soap. Now I, I tried to Google it, but I'm not really sure what fuller's soap is. Uh, but it's some sort of soap that cleans you. So God's coming is going to be a refining and cleaning moment, which is fine for dirty clothes, for dirty dishes, that's great. But for humanity, that means the stripping away of, of sin and of evil that's within us. The coming of God is associated with the day of judgment, when God will come and execute justice on the earth, when he'll come and do away with evil. And this is bad news for sinful humanity. But there's also good news with his coming. For the king has come. And he doesn't just come with justice, but he also comes with grace and mercy. He comes to save, and we have seen that salvation. Through his first coming, through the first advent, God is preparing for himself people who are ready for his second coming. He does this through the forgiveness he gives us in the death and resurrection of Jesus by his taking the punishment that we deserve. And because of this, now John acts as a reminder for us to prepare once again for the second coming of the King, to prepare our hearts for when Jesus will return. Once again, through repentance, daily placing ourselves at the foot of God's cross, at the foot of his throne, in thankfulness for what he's done in Jesus Christ, and in repentance for the way that we continue to turn away from him. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then the second advent of Jesus is not going to go well for you. You need to prepare for his coming. And this means turning to him in repentance and faith, asking for his forgiveness for your sins. But if you are already a Christian, this means waiting expectedly and praying for his coming and continuing to repent of the ways that you have turned away from him. Praying that God would straighten out your paths, that, he might, uh, be that you might be ready for his second coming. We do that once again through repentance. So as we wait, as we get prepared for his coming, let me pray for us. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ that... His coming is not just bad news for us, but his coming uh, means salvation for those who are near and far. We thank you for the salvation we have in him. And we ask that uh, as he is coming back, that you would prepare us for that, that you would turn us away from sin and evil and turn us towards you. All this we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.